We are back in Colossians, so turn there. Colossians chapter 1. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, four little letters written by the Apostle Paul. Colossians 1. We'll be looking at verses 18 through 20. Let's just back up a little bit to get the context from where we were last week. Colossians 1 and verse 15, after praying for the believers in Colossae, the Apostle Paul is shifting gears to exalt Christ as the preeminent one. He, that is Christ, verse 15, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Clearly, the point of the Apostle Paul here is that Jesus Christ is preeminent. He occupies first place in creation because he made it. And he occupies first place in redemption because he is the one who orchestrates it and makes it possible. That is, he deserves to have first place in all things. And that includes your life and mine. So, the apostle makes it clear that the preeminence of Christ and his worthiness to be in first place comes as a result of the fact that he is the sovereign creator. We looked at that last week in verses 15, 16, and 17, that the Lord Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. He is the exact representation of the Father. He is God in the flesh, and he is the agent of creation, verse 16 says. It is by him that all things were created, visible and invisible. So everything that we can see was created by the Lord Jesus Christ as the agent of creation, and everything that we cannot see is also created by Christ. That even includes the demonic world, the spirit world that once was obedient to God but fell along with Satan. And they are now accountable to God. Jesus, according to verse 17, is before all things. That is, he is the eternal one. So he was in existence before the world was made. John 1 makes that very clear. He is the eternal God. He's also the sustainer of creation. 
Everything would completely fly apart if it were not for the Lord Jesus sustaining his creation. Now in verses 18 through 20, the apostle continues to exalt Christ as the preeminent one, but there's a slight shift in his focus. Christ is the preeminent creator who then becomes the preeminent head of the church for whom he died and rose again. So the big idea this morning is this, that resurrected and ascended to the right hand of God, Jesus Christ possesses full authority over the church, which he leads and sustains. So Paul is shifting here from Christ being Lord of the natural world, the natural creation, to Christ being the head or the Lord of the supernatural creation, the new creation. The New Testament often portrays the church as the body of Christ. And as the body of Christ, we need a head. A headless body can't do a whole lot. And so Christ is the head of the church. Listen to some of these scriptures that speak of the church as the body of Christ. Romans 12, for by grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. That's biblical humility. Biblical humility is thinking of yourself not more highly than God thinks and not less highly than God thinks, but with Sober judgment. So you're thinking of yourself with sober judgment according to how God views you. Not more highly than you ought to think. It doesn't take a whole lot of imagination for us to realize how many of the ways that we sin flow out of us thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. Then he goes on to say, for, and this is the reason, as in one body, we have many members and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. So the reason we should not think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think is because we are not independent, we are interdependent. We are not independent of God, certainly, fully dependent on him, and we are not independent from one another. We are interdependent as a body, just as the parts of our body all work together to accomplish what our body needs to do. So it is in the church. And that's what Paul says also in 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. So here we see that Christ is the living head of that body, the church. So Jesus is sovereign over the natural creation, but he's also sovereign over the new creation. Christ is pictured as the head of the church who supplies vitality, life, and direction. And he is acting as our sovereign 
Now, there are three realities which impact how we then relate to Christ. Number one, Jesus Christ is the head of the church, verse 18. He is the head of the body, the church. The word head speaks of authority and direction and life. So, as the head of the body, Christ has authority over us. He also gives direction Just as our brain gives direction to our body, so Christ gives direction to the body. And without this head, there is no life. And without Christ as the head, there is no life. Ephesians 4 says, He gave the apostles, this is the risen Christ, risen and ascended Christ, gives gifts to the church. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So God has given gifts to the church for the sake of bringing us to maturity. That we would be rooted and built up in Christ. And as we mature then, we are no longer like children who are tossed to and fro by whatever wind of doctrine is floating through uh, the world. But we are grounded in Christ. And if we are growing in maturity, we are also learning to speak the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body receives its life and works properly, and on and on he goes. So we are the body, Christ is the head, and my responsibility, according to Ephesians 4, is to equip you to do the work of the ministry, to help you grow in Christ so that you mature in love. The American church doesn't always get this right. The American church often uh, follows a business model, and, and that is it's the, it's the job of the paid employees to do the work of the ministry, i.e., you pay my salary, therefore I should do the ministry for you. Wrong. Unbiblical. What you actually pay me to do is dedicate my life to the study of God's word so that I can equip you to do the work of the ministry. There's not a whole lot of ministry that's going to happen through this church if it all depends on me. Not a whole lot at all. But if I can equip you with the word of God and you are growing to maturity in Christ and you are learning to speak the truth in love to one another and you are learning to take the gospel into each of your individual little networks throughout the Cleveland area, then the church is going to grow. And it grows according to the working of God. So in the New Testament church, there is not this division of the clergy and the laity. You know, the the clergy and the people. In the church that I was raised in, the priests and the common folk. Isn't that way in the New Testament church? If you know Christ, then you are part of the priesthood of believers, all of whom are called to serve Christ. My job is to equip you to do so effectively. 
The headship of, the, of Christ over the church then, as Paul continues in Ephesians, then becomes the basis for order in the family. Ephesians 5 says, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. So the loving leadership of the husband in the family is derived from the loving leadership of Christ over the church. Isn't that interesting? So it's not that the Christ relationship to the church is modeled after marriage. It's the opposite. Marriage is modeled after the relationship of Jesus Christ who sacrificially gave himself to purchase us, to redeem us. And that loving, confident leadership and sacrificial grace is the model for Christian husbands to follow. See, there's a lot of ramifications to this understanding of Christ being the head of the church. So the headship of Christ over the church is crucial for you to understand for so many reasons, but also because there are many threats against it in today's world. First, you need to understand and appreciate the headship of Christ because the largest church denomination in the world usurps the headship of Christ. The official doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church directly opposes the plain teaching of Scripture. According to the Catechism of the Catholic Church, the Pope is the vicar of Christ. Vicar means instead of. So in the Catholic Church official doctrine, the Pope, listen to this folks, the Pope has the same authority as Jesus Christ over the worldwide church. There are other Roman Catholic doctrines that are related to this false doctrine. There is the doctrine of papal supremacy or primacy. And that's the concept that the Bishop of Rome or the Pope is the universal pastor and supreme head of the church. He has full, supreme, immediate, and universal jurisdictional authority to govern the church. That is the official Roman Catholic doctrine. He is called the Holy Father. There is the doctrine of papal infallibility, which means that when the Pope speaks from his position of authority as head of the magisterium, he is teaching in an infallible way. His teaching is without error. And this doctrine teaches that the Pope has the authority to contradict Scripture, which is God's Word. And if you look through the lens of Scripture, you don't have to look very far to see where the wickedness of this doctrine spreads like corruption throughout the world. In recent weeks, the Pope has been in the news for celebrating drag queens and showing that he is moving the Roman Catholic Church toward the blessing of same-sex marriage. And rightly so, there are cardinals and Catholics throughout the world 
in an uproar because they know something isn't right. They may not know why, but something within them says, this is not the way to go. Though same-sex marriage goes directly against the teaching of Christ and the entire Bible, it is not a contradiction in the Pope's mind because he is Christ on earth and he can change the teachings of Jesus Christ according to his own understanding of his authority. Now, please understand me. I grew up Roman Catholic. I have no hatred and no malice in my heart toward those who are still being deceived. If anything, my heart breaks for those who are still trapped in this deception. And many of you were raised under the same false teaching, and I know that your heart aches for the salvation of those whom you love. This is one of the reasons I urge you to bring your Bible to church and ask you to listen to these sermons with an open Bible. I want you to see that what I am teaching you is not my invention, that you can see it for yourself on the pages of Scripture, that this is God's Word. I am not an infallible teacher. Only Jesus Christ is infallible. But I do my best to work hard to study the word to teach you what is faithful to the whole counsel of God. You need to see for yourself what God's word teaches. So please do not let any human teacher deceive you by teaching contrary to scripture. Romans 16, 17 is very clear to us. The apostle says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. We must always stay with Scripture. This is one of the things that really first impressed me with this church in March of 2015 when I had my first meetings with the elders here as you were looking for a new pastor. I was so impressed with the elders' dedication to the Word of God. I remember receiving by email several documents, one of which was a biblical position on the sanctity of marriage. And and just seeing how clearly everything was explained from Scripture itself. It was like a Bible study that you could have opened your Bible and followed along and learned what God's Word teaches about marriage. And since then, we have produced documents concerning uh, the LGBTQ movement of our day. There there are documents on divorce and remarriage. There's documents that, that are like Bible studies written by shepherds who've been here for decades, long before I was here. Because we want you to understand what God's word teaches. We don't want you to just say, oh, just do what we say. (laughs) Follow us. 
We want you to follow Christ more than anything. That's why we pay attention to Scripture and seek to be faithful to teach it. So what's the point here? The point is that Jesus Christ is the head of the church, not the Pope of Rome, not anyone else. Christ rules and directs his body with his word or through his word. Another threat to the headship of Christ over the church is ungodly government leaders. You need to also understand that human government is not the head of the church. Christ is the head of the church. Now, originally, Romans 13 teaches us that human government is a gift from God, and it still is a gift from God. Its purpose is to reward righteousness and punish evil. However, today, that is often turned on its head. Oftentimes today, the opposite is what is actually happening. That itself is not even new if you understand the early days of the church. For example, in Acts chapter 5, we see an example of the apostles being put in a position where they had to choose between obeying the governing authorities or obeying Christ. They were thrown into prison. Why? Because they were preaching the gospel. God miraculously released them from prison. And Acts 5 says this, And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. So when the the governing leaders brought the apostles and set them before the council, the high priest questioned them, saying, We charged you not to teach in this name, the name of Jesus. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior. So the apostles understood that Christ is the head of the church. No governing authority is the head of the church. And Christ gets this authority from the fact that he rose from the dead. And he now sits at the right hand of God. It's totally in line with what we're learning here this morning in Colossians 1. That Christ is the head of the church. He is the beginning, look at verse 18, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Christ is the beginning. He is the source of life. He originated both the natural world and the supernatural creation of the church. Therefore, he alone may rule both realms. He is the firstborn from the dead. And this explains why Christ deserves to be the head of the church worldwide. And when I say the church worldwide, I'm talking about true believers in Jesus. God knows their names all over the planet. Christ is the head of us. He alone is God in the flesh who rose from the dead. That is why he has the authority he does. He's the firstborn from the dead. But you say... Yeah, but others were raised, raised to life, like 
Lazarus and Jairus' daughter and others. Yes, but they died again. There's only one who rose from the dead to never die again. And it's not Buddha. It's not Muhammad. It's not Joseph Smith. It's not any of the popes. It is only Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died in our place, rose from the grave, never ever to die again. And as the living head of the church, he will cause the resurrection of all others. That's what he says in John 5. He says, do not marvel at this for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So Christ will raise all someday. Why? Because he's the living head and he will then be the judge. And then chapter 6 says of those of us who are saved, for this is the will of my father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. What a great comfort that is to us, that death will not even be our ultimate enemy. Death has been defeated by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He is the head of the church. There's a second reality I want you to see and to understand and appreciate, and that is that Jesus Christ is the fullness of God in human form. I know we've touched on this already, especially last week, but look at how Paul says it in verse 19. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So Jesus has earned his place of preeminence as head of the church because of his sacrificial and victorious work on behalf of sinners. This is Paul's argument in 1 Timothy 2. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. There's only one way to get to God. There's only one person who can reconcile us to God to be our mediator. And that is the man Christ Jesus. So he is both God and he is man. And Paul goes on to say he gave himself as a ransom to purchase us. Just buy us back from the slave market of sin. And so Paul says in him. All the fullness of God, the totality of all that God is, all of his divine powers and his attributes are permanently dwelling in the man, Christ Jesus. Perhaps you think that the Lord Jesus rose from the grave, only his spirit, and he is right now at the right hand of God as a spirit being. Not true. He rose from the grave bodily. He ascended bodily as the apostles saw him go up through the sky into the clouds to return again, same way, opposite, obviously. When we see the Lord Jesus in the glories of heaven, he will have his physical body, it will be glorified but it'll be physical. It'll be recognizable. 
the holes in his wrists and his feet will remind us of why we are there. Not because of anything we have done, but totally because of what he has done. Now, why is Paul saying this in verse 19? Well, you might remember from a few weeks ago that one of the doctrinal deviations that Paul was confronting in this letter was angel worship. And so, in in contrast to that false teaching, which was impacting the church, the apostle makes it clear that Jesus does not share his power and authority with angels. It is in him that all the fullness of God permanently dwells and this pleases God the Father. So Christ is exalted as the preeminent one and one day because of his humility he will be acknowledged by all as Lord. That's what Philippians 2 says. We are exhorted to have the same mind of Christ which is what the mind of humility To not consider ourselves more highly than we ought to. To serve one another. To consider others more important than ourselves. And because of his humility, Paul says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Jesus Christ has been exalted because he was willing to humble himself. And one day, Every knee will bow before him. For many it will be too late. For their eternal destiny will have already been sealed by their refusal to repent. But they still will acknowledge him as Lord. For those of us who are saved, it will be a glorious day by which we bow before the one who died and rose again for us. And then there is a third reality that you need to understand and appreciate. Verse 20, Jesus Christ is the Lord of redemption. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Now remember, we always have to interpret the Bible within its immediate context. And so here we see that reconciliation does not equal salvation for all. Reconciliation means that the barrier has been removed and God will now deal with sinners in the way that only he knows how. Notice verse 20 says, he reconciled to himself all things. Well, what are the all things? Context Go back to verses 16 and 17. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible, whether and visible, whether visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created. So even the demonic world has been placed into a new position, not saved. But what Paul is saying is that Christ restores perfect order and perfect judgment to all. Uh, Richard Chin explains it this way. In the context, 
Reconciliation cannot refer only to enemies being made friends, even though that is generally what it means in the Bible. The scope of reconciliation here is something bigger and broader. In this context, where Paul is including the spiritual realm as well as the earthly earthly realm, it most likely refers to bringing about true and peaceful order in all of creation. Think of an accountant reconciling the books, bringing everything back into proper order. That's the kind of idea that Paul has in mind here. First and foremost, true and peaceful order means receiving Christ Jesus as he is, as Lord. And within this true order, it's possible to receive Jesus willingly as Lord or unwillingly to acknowledge him as Lord. Every person will either enjoy reconciling forgiveness from Jesus or face reconciling judgment from Jesus. Both are in one sense restored to true and peaceful order of authority. So Jesus is the Lord of redemption. He is the one who will have the final say on the final day. In fact, Jesus himself said that all judgment has been given to him by the Father. And Jesus will judge. He will judge those who refuse to repent, which will include the demonic world. And he will also then judge those who belong to him, not for eternal salvation, but we will be judged for how we lived the Christian life. So the point here is that all is set in order by the triumphant Son of God. Those who refuse to repent and turn to Christ are reconciled to judgment. Those who repent and trust in Christ for salvation are reconciled to peace with God. And this is the good news of the gospel, which we clearly then see in the next three verses which is going to be our focus next week. And you, verse 21, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, now he's talking to believers, and you specifically, you who know Christ, you once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. This is the good news of the gospel. Jesus Christ is the living head. He has sovereign authority over the church, which is his body. And as head, he also provides direction that is necessary for us to know how to walk with him and that direction is found in only one place here this is the inerrant infallible word of god by believing it and following it you will never go astray amen, amen? god we thank you for this incredible gift of your word which has been given to us by the risen and exalted, ascended head of the church, Jesus Christ. 
and we long to be faithful to him that one day we may hear him say, well done, thou good and faithful servants. And Lord, you know the day that we live in. You know the darkness of the age in which we are called to be light. God, I pray that our love for the truth and our love for the gospel, the saving grace of God in Christ, would be a beacon in this world. That we would not only love truth, but we would also love sinners who do not yet know Christ. Help us to never forget when we didn't know him. Help us to not become arrogant, prideful, thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, to recognize that if we know Jesus, it's because of your gracious work, and we are now secure in him. So God, thank you for the incredible gifts that you've given to us in the gospel. And may we follow our head the Lord Jesus Christ, by the strength that you supply to us in your spirit. And God, if there's anyone here today who has not yet come to Jesus, would you so woo them in their heart to see the immense love you have for them and that they would stop running away from you and run toward you instead and be found to be accepted by the Lord Jesus who came not to save the righteous, but sinners like all of us here today. We give you glory in the name of Jesus. Amen.